0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to see you, and I am very excited to open up uh, the Word of God. Last week was an unusual time. When I was away, I wasn't speaking somewhere else and actually celebrating our 20th year anniversary. So we missed you dearly and are very happy to be back. And as I do come back, we will be beginning a new book, having finished the book of Second Timothy, We uh, preach through books of the Bible here, believe that that's very important, that we might have a a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches and the individual books and themes of redemptive revelation. And so we will be taking up the book of Jude for probably the next five to six weeks or so, and um, I'll explain in my introduction why I think this book is important for us First Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul writes, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. We see that in large scale in our country in particular and in Western civilization However, in other parts of the world, the Lord is moving in a very very powerful way. As souls are being saved, uh, outnumbering the birth rate. Um, There's there's good encouragement there to know that, that God is indeed working. But we happen to live here in the United States of America, and I think for us, we need to be aware of what's going on, the state of our culture and the church that is around us. As our culture continues to change and decline at, at an ever rapid rate, even the, the government and governing authorities legislating, um, abomination and immorality and flat out perversion. The news of gay marriage is almost old news now. And, and the, um, you know, all of that is almost old news because now it's all about gender identity. It has nothing to do with how you were made biologically, but just how you feel that particular day. Even in the state of California, we live in a state where a 15-year-old girl can go and get an abortion without telling her parents or anyone, but a 20-year-old who's been married for three years, has two children, is working a full-time job, cannot go buy a pack of cigarettes. I'm not endorsing smoking cigarettes. I'm illustrating the fallacy of the culture of which we live. It's okay to murder, a minor to murder an unborn child, but for an adult that's well into his adulthood at 20 years old to not be able to buy a pack of cigarettes. We live in a day in which the mayor of the largest city in our nation will endorse a boycott on Chick-fil-A because of their stand on traditional marriage. Okay, This is the warped culture in which we live. Sadly, in the church, there's been compromise as well. Beside the old news of the denial of the lordship of Christ, a historical bodily resurrection, the virgin birth—you know those things that we wrestled with in the 19th century with German liberalism spreading in—you know that again, that's old news, and now it's just gotten so bizarre to this casting of vision and this inner deity almost within oneself and it's it's just flat out bizarre on a, a numerous different levels apostasy is what Jude is speaking of in his letter amongst other things and the encouragement for the saints what is apostasy apostasy is a falling away from the truth one commentator said the essence of apostasy is changing sides from that of the crucified to that of the crucifier. In other words, not on the side of Christ. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews can encourage us in 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be any, in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that what falls away from the living God. And so just as these things are something that is near and dear to our heart here, it's, it's, there's nothing really new under the sun. The New Testament writers wrote of this. And I want to appeal to us as a church at Grace Bible Church San Diego and those who listen around the world, I want to appeal to all of you with Jude that we contend earnestly for the faith and i have a particular burden not only for us those of us who are adults but for the next generation and for our children that we that they would see us contending earnestly for the faith and we'll talk more about what that might look like next week but there's one thing that we know for sure that the church is victorious Jesus said, The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Though there be a myriad of attacks, though the church has tried throughout church, though though the church has been attempted to be squashed throughout church history, none have been victorious. The church abides forever and is victorious. Jesus Christ is the church's one foundation and it cannot fail. However, heretics are as old as mankind itself. I mean, you can trace back through the Old Testament, certainly through church history, and you see heretics, and and, and nearly all the books of the New Testament, except for two, address the topic of false teachers. You realize that? I mean, Christ spoke so much about these that would come in my name, preaching something different. And, And so... It's a topic that is something that is touched on largely throughout most of the New Testament books. Now, we understand that a lot has changed from the first century to the 21st century. In the first century, that false prophet would have to get on either walk or get on the back of some animal to travel some limited distance and then get off and then propagate the air and then do that again and again. Now, how is the 21st century different? The wave of the internet, satellite TV, that false prophet can sit in one place as golden throne of trinity broadcasting network headquarters or wherever it might be and be broadcast all over the world to unsuspecting ears to undiscerning hearts leading millions and millions astray of course we know god is sovereign in all these things and so what Jude's urgency is, and, and, and we'll look at this in a moment, is he, he wants to write about our common salvation, about the glories of our, our salvation, but he feels a necessity, he's compelled to write that they would contend earnestly for the faith. To put it another way, Jude's letter is, is very uh, polemical. Uh, there's a call to stand up for what is right, to, to fight for the truth. The the book of Jude is full of punchy and pithy uh, exhortations and proclamations. And we might just ask ourselves, well, what what is the difference between apologetics and polemics? Those are terms that are are used. We should probably illustrate that. Apologetics comes from the word apologia. Uh, The most famous verse is 1 Peter 3.15, always being ready to make a defense for the hope that lies within you. That defense is apologia. And so apologetics has to do with defending your Christian belief. For example, on the historical bodily resurrection of Christ. You're engaging in a conversation with somebody. You're defending the scriptural evidence that's laid forth on the bodily resurrection. You are doing apologetics. However, polemics is different. It is arguing against the truth claims of another so, what another is 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 touting to be truth, it is attacking in a polemical way against that. And so negating or disaffirming the false teaching of another. Second Corinthians 10:5, we're to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the very knowledge of God. And so we're to tear down those strongholds, we're to expose the false teaching that is present and that is there. And then Jude touches on several um, glorious doctrines of the Christian faith in this short letter, uh, 25 verses, of which we will read now. The title of the message today, as we just take up verses 1 and 2, is To the Called and Preserved Remnant. To the Called and Preserved Remnant. But I want to read the whole book for us so we can hear it in one sitting. Uh, just as the original readers would have heard it. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since in the same way as they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire." Yet in the same way, these men also, dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. And But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. "...clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the seas, casting up their own shame like foam, wondering stars from whom the black darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam had prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they had done in an ungodly way and of all harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers and finding fault and following after their own lust, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions and are worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. On some have mercy with fear hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is inspired. We thank you, Lord, that it is breathed out by you and the various authors of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for this letter that's oft neglected and passed over or read over very quickly. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts each individually here, uh, not only this day, but through this short series. And Lord, that you would fortify our church that you would strengthen her as Christ is the head of this church, as Christ spilled his righteous blood for this church, as we know that the church indeed is victorious and will be victorious against all error, Lord, increase our faith unto that end. And Lord, may, may we be those who are very conscious of building ourselves up in this most holy faith and praying in the spirit and keeping ourselves in the love of God and, and having that hope, waiting anxiously for that day of consummation when we will see Jesus face to face. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very quickly, just to lay some groundwork, um, it's always hard when you're introducing a book. There's a lot of background work that has to be said, so I've trimmed everything down of my many, many, many hours of just on working on the introduction to just spit it out to you in a very brief way, but we need to talk about the author. There's a lot of dispute as to who actually wrote this letter. Uh, there's common thoughts that it's um, really just a pseudo-letter. It was written in the mid-second century. Um, many scholars have questioned this and the book of Second Peter. There's obvious parallel themes to 2 Peter chapter 2, if you're familiar with uh, that book, or you should be. Um, and both of those books have been questioned. Now, the name Jude or Judah, it's, a, it's Judah in the original. Um, the, you know, there's a, It's a very common name that was used in the, in the first century, a common name really throughout the Bible. It's used 44 times in the New Testament, and there's at least eight different Judes or Judases. And so here we have a book authored by Jude. And so we have to ask ourselves, who, which Jude wrote it? Well, we're pretty sure it wasn't the son of Jacob uh, from the book of Genesis, uh, obviously. Um, but there are others. There's Judah, who's the son, or uh, Judah in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke three thirty. There's Judas, who was a revolutionary in the days of the census. There's Judas, an apostle, the son of Jacob. That's recorded exclusively by Mark. There's, of course, the most famous Judas, right? And probably Jude is referred to here to separate from Judas, the, the traitor who betrayed our Lord with a kiss. But even in the book of Acts, there's two other uh, Judases, Judas of Damascus that hosted the Apostle Paul in Acts 9 after the Damascus Road experience, as well as in Acts 15, apparently a Christian prophet that was, had a leading position in the Jerusalem church. And then the final is, of course, Judas, the brother of Jesus, of which I believe that that's none other than who wrote this letter. Mark 6.3, is not this the carpenter and the uh, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? Now Jude doesn't use very complex Greek, however he, he has introduced several words, 18 Greek New Testament words occur only in this letter and nowhere else uh, in the New Testament. Uh, one of the things, just preliminary studies, is he likes to, if you, if you want to intensify a verb, you put a preposition in front of it. And one of the things that I've noticed through several of the verbs as I examine the Eighty or so, forty or eighty—I can't remember. It's all, in it. <laughs> but uh, is that there's lots of prepositions before the various verbs that he uses here, and so it, it kind of gives that idea. If you remember the, Apostle, or, or the um, Gospel of Mark, the immediately, immediately occurring forty-one times showed us the urgency of, of how he told the story. I, I think that, that tells us something of Jude's urgency of intensifying these verbs, and and that's just a, a first. Curse, cursory look, and for example, to contend earnestly, which we'll see next week, is agonosomai. But he adds the preposition in front of it to intensify that it's more than just a blood, sweat, and tears fight. It's intensified even from that. He identifies himself. Notice in verse one, not as the brother of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? He, inter- he introduces himself as a bond servant. Of Jesus Christ, literally a slave of Christ. That's what dulas means as slave. Um, one who is solely committed to another. It was very common. One-third of the Roman world were slaves. A slave was bought and sold as a commodity. Jude identifies himself as a slave of what? Of Jesus Christ. Aristotle has said, a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. <laughs> In regards to slavery, and slavery was just very common. And so you have uh, the beginning, Paul used in a few of his letters, calls himself a slave of Christ, um, as well as Peter and others. And then he says, the brother of James. He does not mention that he's the brother of Jesus, as I said, but he humbly associates himself with James, who would be very well known to the church. Uh, James was a pillar uh, in the church of Jerusalem. We see him in the book of Acts several times. In fact, Galatians 2.9, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars in the church. So by first calling himself a slave of Christ, it is evident that he doesn't want to place any stock in his physical connections. And also Jude, like James, Um, was not an apostle, such as Peter and Paul. He makes no claim to apostolic authority. In fact, if you're paying attention, in verse 17, he says that we ought to pay attention to the words that were spoken by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he doesn't identify himself as an apostle. Now, another interesting fact, and I want you young people to listen to this, is that James and Jude and probably the rest of the brothers and sisters, or at least we know the brothers, were not believers during Jesus' earthly ministry. Can you imagine growing up with a sibling? My brothers are not here. I grew up with two brothers. I was the oldest, so I was probably instigated 90% of the torment that went on and the conflict that went on, but... Uh, uh, and Jesus would have been the oldest. But, but can you imagine his siblings? You look at your siblings, and, 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 and this, this one is different. He's not instigating anything. He's the sinless one. And they did not believe. Mark 3 and verse 31, Jesus says, during his earthly ministry, behold, or someone says, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he answers, for whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brothers. John tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 7 and verse 5, not, not even his brothers were believing in him, as just a tagline added to the unbelief that was present among the religious rulers. So his brothers, even during Christ's earthly ministry, were unbelievers. And so what's the application to you, young people? Well, your parents believe. Your parents read the Bible to you. Your parents bring you to church. You have so much gospel light around you. And and, and they're training you in the ways of the Lord. And yet, have you really believed in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he's the only son of God? Do you believe he's the only one worthy of worship? Do you believe that he died for sinners on the cross? Don't harden your heart and think, oh, Maybe later, maybe later, maybe when I'm in college, maybe after college, maybe after I retire. And then it's too late. Come to Jesus today. And then, of course, the date, there's a lot of debate in in regards to that, but we are taking the assumption, and I believe, that this is the brother of Jesus Christ, Jude. um, The date becomes a little bit easier to figure out. He was probably, he was either the youngest or the second youngest. Matthew listed him the last, okay, which would mean he's the youngest. Luke, I believe it's Luke, lists, lists him as second to last. But, but you figure that there was sisters born in between, so even if it was every year, he's probably about 10 years old, younger than Jesus. So it might be safe to say that he was born around AD 10 or so, Um Another thing in regards to the date, notice what he does not mention here. The first waves of attack to Jerusalem and the temple, and he's writing to Jews, which I'll establish in a moment. He doesn't mention that, okay? And so it's, that was between 66 and 70, A.D. 70, the temple being destroyed. So that tells me before A.D. 66. Peter was martyred, remember, by Nero and That was probably about AD 65. Well, Peter borrows from Jude and doesn't copy him perfect, you know, exactly, but he, he borrows some of those nuances and themes in his second letter. So the most likely date is between 60 and 65, and I would lean about 64 to 65. Now, some stumble about this. Um, you know, he quotes the extra biblical book, First Enoch. Um, he's probably not the only, um, New Testament writer to do that. In fact, First Peter, when he speaks of Christ making proclamation to the spirits, um, you know, in First Peter three eighteen is, is an allusion to at least First Enoch. Now, what's the occasion in writing and structure that we have here? The, the structure here, typically, these letters were written with a greeting, which included the author, the recipients, and then the body, and then a doxology. And that's how we see most of the New Testament epistles uh, being written. But as I already alluded to, verse three makes it very, very clear that Jude does not write the letter that he had intended to. He He intended to write about this common salvation, and but but he was pressed to change course after he heard the effects that the false teachers were having, perverting the very grace of God into a license for wicked and sexual immoral acts, denying the Lord. Now, some take this book to be addressing Gnosticism. I don't see that. I think Jude is addressing antinomianism. We see that clearly in verse 4 that these people have crept in and they've turned the grace of God into licentiousness and deny the only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. There's not much new under the sun. That we, That's a big problem in our day as well. The Apostle Paul addressed this, Romans 3.8, Let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? may it never be no you got it you got it wrong the fact is that these licentious teachers were present within the church and so there's a there's a sound of alarm beep 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 you know that somehow they've gotten in look down in verse 12 it says that i'm sorry is that right verse 12 um verse 13 that, well somewhere that they've they're they're a part of the the love feast and so somehow they've gotten into the church they are in the church but they're not of the true church they've as he says in verse three they've crept in like a roach sneaks into your kitchen between a tiny crack down at the baseboard in the corner of your kitchen a bug crawling in sneaking in that's the idea that they've crept in they've become accepted they're present in these feasts uh, that are taking place the love feasts that would take place And so the alarm must be sounded. They're likened to Cain and Balaam and Korah. And these heirs of theological errors as well as moral errors need to be exposed. And that is Jude's goal to reveal the true nature of these heretics and also, and mark it well, the destruction that is theirs in the future. Giving assurance that that will be done This book is a passionate plea to take up spiritual arms for the church and to engage in battle. Jude is confident that God is able to keep them, the true church, from falling. He says it in verse 24, "...now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy." Believers are urged to use those resources of which I touched on in verse 20 and 21 to keep themselves in the love of God and to build themselves up in the most holy faith. So with that, let's begin at verse 1b and we'll consider first the recipients here. Now notice, you'll notice right away that um, as Paul says to the church at Ephesus to, you know, and so forth, there's, there's no group or city Being identified here. (coughs) Excuse me, there's no church in particular. But Jude assumes something about his hearers. I mean, did you count all the Old Testament allusions as we read this short letter? He obviously understands that they would be familiar with these things. He doesn't stop to develop it, he doesn't stop to say where he got it from. Um, he speaks of the pilgrimage, the fall of the angels, the Sodom and Gomorrah. He speaks of Cain and Balaam and Korah, just to name a few. So it is safe to assume that he writes to the saints in Palestine. And he calls thee, he refers to these recipients in three ways: those who are the called, those who are the beloved in God the Father, and those who are kept by Jesus Christ and I just want to look at each of those and by the way you'll notice I'll repeat it several times but Jude loves triads he loves to put threes together and we'll see two of them in our text in fact in verse 2 may the mercy peace and love be multiplied to you there's another triad and there's one right here in regards to the recipients now this idea of the called to those who are the called. What does that mean? Well, even in extra-biblical Greek, it's the idea of a summoning to a divine engagement, like a deity summoning or, or, or some authoritative summons. And so even in extra-biblical Greek, that occurs. Of course, the God of the Bible throughout the Bible is the one who chooses and calls a people unto himself. Paul, or Paul, uh, Jude likely has in mind the servant songs of which we read part of one in Isaiah, where again and again you, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. <clears throat> Isaiah 48, listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I have called. Referring to his people, Israel. Uh, and then so Not only is Old Testament Israel, those who are called, but Jude writes here to Christians who stand in the line of succession, which stretches all the way back to the very call of Abraham in Genesis 12. His people are the called. In the New Testament, God is the one who calls. Romans 9.11 Though the twins, so that God's purpose according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls first corinthians 1 god is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son so jude calls his readers and the hearers the called why? Because he's convinced that they are choice before God. They are the elect of God. They are his precious possession. And he's got great concern for them because of that very reason. And furthermore, he has great confidence that the God who calls will indeed cause to persevere unto the end. A second thing he notices is those beloved in God. God's love is the only way that we would ever be called. It's the only way it would ever happen. Romans 11, verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are the beloved for the sake of the fathers. We have here a perfect participle and implies God's sovereign choice of the people who make up the church. Um, The NET Bible, New English Translation, paraphrases it, wrapped in the love of the God the Father. Isn't that comforting? That the beloved of God, the ones who are called, wrapped in the love of God the Father. Paul uses allusions to this, the called and beloved of God, in the beginning of the book of Romans as well. Now, God's choice is not motivated by one's merit, it's not by how many good deeds you've done, how many hours you've served in the church, or volunteered at the hospital, or any such thing. Paul helps us in 2 Timothy 1 9. He who saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. What does that scream? Sovereign grace. Stop taking merit for what God has done. God's love is constant. It does not waver. And aren't you glad about that, that God's love doesn't waver based on your performance? He's not doing very good today. I'm going to withdraw some of my love. He's having a great day. I'm going to wrap myself, my love in him. No, God is immutable. He does not change. And we are so mutable, we change really from minute to minute. But we can recognize it maybe an hour to hour. We're sad one hour. We're happy the next hour. Or maybe it's one week to another week or whatever that that we can see. But we're changing all the time because we're mutable. God does not change as he is immutable. And why is that so important? Because his love is always lavished upon us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And then that goes right into the very next thing that he says, which is just as glorious. Kept for Jesus Christ. Kept for Jesus Christ. Here we have another passive participle. It's something that we don't do. We don't keep ourselves for Jesus. It's something that God is doing. Something outside of us. And and it's a dative. So it could be kept by Jesus Christ or kept for Jesus Christ. I like the for Jesus Christ. Now this verb occurs... um, It's a most often occurring verb in this book. It occurs five times, and it's tereo. It means, and I'm going to explain this because it's important, to cause a state or condition to continue in, to keep or to hold, to reserve or to preserve. It's used a couple times of the wicked in this letter. For example, in verse... 6, those who are destined for judgment, they are kept in eternal bonds. That's, there it is, kept. Verse 13, of which the black darkness is reserved. This black darkness is kept reserved for the wicked. In verse 21, I've already referenced it a couple times. Keep yourself in the love of God. So taken together we see here in these three characteristics Judas emphasizing the ground of their calling as the beloved of God but the goal of their calling the final salvation that is in Jesus Christ to be had as Peter says for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time ready to be fully realized as it were on that last day <clears throat> we are kept for Jesus Christ. And that means God will not allow anything to happen to us that's outside of His plan. That means the evil one will never out-trick God and slip in and do something to you outside of God's plan. In fact, Jesus is praying in His high priestly prayer, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you, there it is again, keep them from the evil one. And of course, we know that He does that. Of course, we have examples of Job and others where God allows to a certain point, perhaps the enemy or demons to torment or or, or to provoke. But we know that God is sovereign in those things. One of the Puritans, Thomas Manton, who wrote an extensive commentary on this um, book of the Bible, says this Jesus Christ is the cabinet, is the cabinet in which God's jewels are kept. So that if we would stand, we must get out of ourselves and get into him, in whom alone there is safety. Jesus Christ is the cabinet in which all God's jewels are kept. That is, all the elect of God, all who have experienced the grace of God, we are jewels kept and preserved by him. And then, of course, we love the doctrines of grace. We love the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. That, that no matter what you do, if you're truly in Christ, you cannot fall away. We are secure in Christ, brethren. This ought to give you great joy each and every day. On those days when you're weighed down and when things are so heavy and, and, and you feel burdened and, and maybe even you're doubting your own salvation. It's where you go to the promises. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And and you begin to encourage yourself and preach the gospel to yourself, reminding yourself that you're secure in Christ. Jesus said in John 10, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It means that in Philippians 1:6 when we when we read that I'm confident of this very thing He who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of salvation. That we believe that what God begins, He completes. God doesn't have picture a workshop and having a bunch of unfinished projects. He finishes the projects. Not like in my house where I've got projects at different stages. What God begins with His people rescuing that ruined sinner, that that despairing sinner from the gutter as it were, and, and breathing new life and effectually calling that sinner so that the sinner can respond to the Gospel. The sinner is justified by faith alone, but can't explain that just yet. But is further sanctified and grows in the understanding of what it means to be a child of God. Begins to embrace the glorious doctrine of adoption. Understands what it is to have Saving faith, and that it's something that is, it's an alien faith. It's something from outside. It's a gift of God. And to know that we will be further sanctified and preserved unto the end. That is good news, brethren. And then Jude moves on. So that's the recipients. So who are the recipients? Well, in a sense, we are, right? If you're in Christ and, and you're among the called and you're, you're wrapped in the love of the God, the Father, and you're kept for Christ, this is for us today. And then his prayer wish, as they're often called in verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, <clears throat> in ancient Greek letters, it was very common to have a wish prayer and the, and the greetings, the author, who it's to, and then a greeting was the three elements that would be common and these letters. And of course, Jude here uses a unique combination of words. Grace is not found here, and there's different views as to possibly why. But mercy is often thought to be a synonym with grace, and it's mercy, peace, and love. One of the reasons I think that Jude purposely does not use grace here. It's because that is the very distortion that he's writing against. Right? In verse 4, did you read it? Those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And so he uses other words that are, have a similar uh, theme to them. And, and, and notice he says that may these graces be multiplied to you. May they increase to you. So mercy, peace and love briefly first of all mercy mercy is that kindness that pity that compassion that comes to us and and mercy and peace are bound together in a beautiful way as even paul binds those two together in first timothy one and in other places matthew henry says this the mercy of god is the spring and fountain of which all good we have or hope for mercy not only to the miserable but to the guilty Next to mercy is peace, which we have from the sense of having obtained mercy. We can have no true and lasting peace, but what flows from our reconciliation with God by Christ Jesus. Secondly, peace, Um, and again, Paul uses, uses this in Romans 1 and in other places, Um, But we have here a a reminder that that as Jude begins his letter, he's asking that these things would be increased, and there's probably a recognition that maybe that peace has been shaken a little bit. Maybe there's been difficulties and trials that the unity and the the, the peace and the serene nature of, of church life that they once knew is beginning to slip away due to those that have crept in. And so he wishes and prays upon them peace we know that it's the peace of god that surpasses all comprehension right and it will guard our hearts and minds in christ jesus paul says in philippians 4 and verse 7 and then love obviously god's love towards men that it would be more and more realized that we would understand it more because we can be so dull and and to really understanding the breadth and the depth and the height uh, you know and of the love of God that is for us. God's love is expressed uh, very beautifully in the beautiful doxology there at the end, which I won't read again. God's love is something that is altogether important. We might illustrate it like this, that it's the radar system that provides an aircraft a safe flight path. For it is a certain guide, a certain certain to guide us to our destination. The warning is that safety can be certain only provided we keep ourselves in that flight path. And so drawing from verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Here, this love, it's the radar system that guides us to our destination. And again, Jude doesn't say, may these be added to you, right? He says, may they be multiplied. Now, there's something significant about this, I think. I mean, being added is something. 2 plus 2 is 4. 4 plus 4 is 8. 8 plus 8 is 16, right? But if you multiply those, 2 times 2, still 4, right? 4 times 4 16. 16 times 16. 258 or 256. So you see the difference of, of when you multiply just the same things, how much exponentially they come. And he wants the his hearers to experience these things in a multiplied way well just a couple of words before we conclude just on the original intent of this letter more next week jude had set out to write about the glories of their common salvation that's what he wanted to write about he wanted to of course that's what most preachers want to talk about you know those things that we can just revel around and that kind of thing we don't want to be controversial or talk about judgment we want to just talk about those those wonderful things: our justification, our salvation, being all of God's free grace, and that gospel assurance that comes from that. But as he sat to write, something heavy came upon him. He says, "It's an. It's an I felt the necessity." okay he's making every effort to write it's it's every effort to be eager to write and this necessity comes upon him there's a sense of urgency there's a sense of distress in this context he tells them to earnestly contend for the faith the faith is not your personal faith in jesus christ it is the body of doctrine that we believe about god and about christ to contend earnestly for what we believe to be true, contained in the Word of God alone. That's what he's asking them to do. There's nothing more valuable than truth. And I know in our culture, there's no absolute truth. We live in a postmodern culture, right? What is truth? And all of these kinds of things. But there's nothing more valuable than truth. That's why the martyrs went to the stake. They could exalt God even in the midst of the flames. That's why Christians are tortured. That's why the persecuted church is, is at an all-time high now. Truth is vital that we understand it. Now the pastor's role, of course, the, the pastors of the church are to feed the flock, to lead them, to lead in the ordinances, but also to protect from error and to be able to refute and eradicate false doctrine. Well, Very briefly, in conclusion, brethren, as we dig into this letter, I trust our hearts will be encouraged and challenged as we we press on. And and I want to emphasize the fact that, that we believe that the church will be, and is, and has always been, victorious. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Okay, either Jesus Christ is a failure or the church will be victorious. And in fact, I quoted from <clears throat> uh, the church's one, church one foundation, I'm going to quote from, I made a reference to it earlier, the church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide us, sustain and cherish, is with her to the end, though there be those that hate her and false sins in her pale, against or foe or traitor, she shall prevail Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits her consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the church victorious shall be the church at rest. Are you among those who have been called to salvation are you among those who have received a transformation who, that knows that you, that the power of sin of which you, you were enslaved, that that is broken, that you've experienced freedom by the power of God and by the power of His Spirit? Has God called you out of this world? Or are you still in love and dancing with this world? You see, our salvation is of free grace alone. For by grace you've been saved, through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a what? It's a gift of God. And it's a wonderful gift that's being offered even to you. Don't kid yourself and rationalize that I don't really need to go that way to God. I'm a good person and God likes good people, right? Don't kid yourself. That's rationalizing. That's folly that you'll be good enough to somehow inherit eternal life. We need to examine ourselves. as Jesus Christ number one in our life? I'm living for Him above all things. Or are there idols that you're living for that are more important than living for Him? Do you have peace with God? Have you experienced the love of God? It's, as Paul says in Romans, it's been shed abroad in our hearts. Another hymn, stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as He promised, perfect peace and rest. Do you realize the turmoil in this world is because people don't have that peace and rest that they're looking for? Confess your sins to God if you're outside of Christ. Turn from your sin. Hate your sin. Run to Jesus, the one that extends his arms and says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hear the cry of the prophet, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the salvation that we enjoy. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are among those who have been called, who have experienced the love of God. We thank you, Lord, that that we are kept for Jesus Christ, that we indeed will persevere to the end. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the compassion that you have shown us. We confess we are undeserving recipients. And Lord, all too often we spurn your grace each and every day. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to have short accounts with you and with one another Lord, may we be those that are ever confessing and ever repenting and ever flying to Christ, resting in His finished work alone. But Lord, with all these benefits that we have received, we know that there is responsibility. And could it be that we are a part of the New Testament church that has not compromised in the 21st century for such a time as this, as Mordecai told Esther, such a time as this to fully equip the next generation to remind each other of these various truths and how we must fortify our faith lord may we hear the call to spiritual arms in this year 2016 and lord we thank you that the church is victorious and that we can rest in that in jesus name we pray amen